0: episode 9 of the Floss for Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open-source software for science. Today, Patrick and I are interviewing Christophe Gozan about Gmesh, a 3D finite element mesh generator with integrated CAD and post-processing facilities. Hi Christophe, could you introduce yourself and present us with your current research areas?
1: Yeah, hi guys. Um, so as you said, so my name is Christophe Gozan, I'm a professor here in Belgium, in Liège, at the university, and um, I basically work at the interface between applied math, um, computer science, scientific computing, and then engineering physics, and most, uh, well, in particular, let's say electromagnetics. So I've been working in uh, mesh generation for quite a while, and I'm one of the two main authors of this Gmesh software we're going to talk about today. So just to tell you a bit more, so I lead a group of researchers over here, about uh, between 15 and 20, it depends. And so we are all basically busy solving partial differential equations, and we use methods that, you know, make use of meshes. And so this is why for all these years I've been developing, you know, tools that generate little triangles and little tetrahedra. Here we go.
2: Okay, thanks. You are involved in the development of Gmesh, and some of our listeners probably are uh, not be aware of what it does. How would you briefly describe it for newcomers?
1: Yeah, so the idea is that uh, a mesh generator, such as Gmesh, what well, it generates so-called meshes. And so what are meshes? People also sometimes call them grids. So these are discretization of space. So basically, you... Well, let's take an example, maybe. So imagine that you are a mechanical designer, a mechanical engineer, and you want to simulate, model. It's a mechanical piece in a, in a complex mechanical system. And so you do a model. And so this model, well, it can be of, either very simple, it could be analytic, you do it on paper, or it could be like a little circuit that you can solve on a little calculator, Or you can actually go and solve the partial differential equations that describe the mechanical behavior. So a simple example would be solving uh, linear elasticity, for example. So this is a PDE, so a partial differential equation. And you have many methods to solve such equations that describe physical phenomena. And some methods, actually most of the successful methods currently, they use meshes, and so they are based on solving that equation on a discretization of space. So you're going to take your mechanical piece, you're going to split it up in small geometrical shapes. So in 2D, these could be little triangles, or little squares, or quadrangles, or rectangles, 3D pyramids, or little cubes, as we call them, hexahedra or tetrahedra. And then you're going to solve a discretized version of your equations on this set of elementary shapes. And so a mesh generator basically takes your piece, so the geometrical shape, and it splits it up into smaller pieces of simple shapes, so triangles, quadrangles, tetrahedra, hexahedra. And the goal is to do that, well, let's say, automatically, or almost automatically. And if you, again, look at this mechanical example, the engineer or the designer will draw that piece in a software. It's called a CAD software, so computer-aided design software. And then uh, this design Uh, will be basically fed into a mesh generator. And then the mesh generator will split it up into smaller pieces. And then you solve your equations on the small pieces. So that's the goal of mesh generation. You split up uh, a geometrical part into many small pieces onto which you can solve the partial differential equations that you're interested in.
0: Okay. Um, Who are mostly the target users for Gmesh?
1: I would say all users of these, let's say, numerical schemes that um, are based on, let's say, meshes. And so uh, you have several numerical methods that are well-known that use meshes. Probably the most popular one is called the finite element method. And so Gmesh is primarily a finite element mesh generator. So we generate meshes that are suitable for finite element methods. Uh, but you have many other, let's say, numerical methods that are based on, on these meshes or on these grids. And so you can use Gmesh for generating some of them. Now, the, the, the kind of users, so so that's quite large, right? All these guys that um, uh, use, let's say, numerical techniques based on meshes. But um, it can go from, from students, you know, researchers in universities, all the way to to designers and engineers in industry that use these tools to to design, to optimize uh, various, let's say, various things.
2: Okay. Which of these tasks can be done with Gmesh? Is it only a measure or can I do some pre- and post-processing?
1: Yeah, so one of the, let's say, features of Gmesh is that we do uh, in Gmesh, let's say, the, the full pipeline. So you can actually build the geometry. So there is a built-in CAD modeler, so computer-aided design modeler. So you can start, let's say, from a blank page, and then you, you can build up your geometry. You put some, some spheres, some cubes, some whatever shapes, or you can import a geometry. So that's the first part. So it's really geometrical description. And then once you have that, you go to the actual meshing phase where you will discretize this geometry. So you're going to create these little triangles or tetrahedra. And then Gmesh can also be used actually to drive a solver. So there is no solver, let's say, within Gmesh, but Gmesh can, let's say, call external solvers to, let's say, use the meshes that were just generated. And then Gmesh also allows you to visualize and post-process some results on these meshes. So in that sense, it's, um, well, you have the full pipeline, let's say, in Gmesh.
0: Okay. Uh, Do you have a brief list of solvers that can be called from Gmesh?
1: Well, actually, you can interface whatever you want. So Gmesh implements what we call a one-lab server. And so it basically allows you to interface any, let's say, code. If the code is open source or can be modified, and if the code is in C++, C or Python, then you can actually have what we call a native solver interface. So you can directly hook into Gmesh to communicate with Gmesh. And if it's not, then Gmesh has a procedure to basically pre-process the input files of these solvers in such a way that you can also drive, let's say, any solver that is uh, input file driven. So you take a commercial tool that has a, you know, its own domain-specific language to describe the problem. Then Gmesh can pre-process the input file automatically. And then you have this back and forth between Gmesh and the solver That allows, let's say, Gmesh to communicate the mesh to the solver, and then the solver says, okay, I have a result, and the result can be loaded, etc. So, it's not limited to one solver. It's like a generic way of interacting between um, the mesher and uh, and the solver.
0: Okay. Um Okay. I've used briefly uh, GMesh to generate some geometry. Uh, it is really driven like through. The, you can drive it with the graphical user interface, like selecting different, uh, generating points, lines, of faces. Um, can you automate in any way these tasks to like to script the generation of the geometry, the meshing to accelerate the workflow? Like if you want to, uh, let's say, um, have different, vary a parameter, geometric parameter in your model, just to, to do a loop in, in the, and generate many meshes that you can, uh, analyze. Yes,
1: definitely. So it's actually probably the way most people use Gmesh. So the the graphical user interface of Gmesh is still relatively rudimentary, uh, and we are not, you know, uh, gooey, let's say, uh, design guys. And so most of the time uh, when people use Gmesh, actually they use it through the, let's say, the built-in scripting language that Gmesh uh, provides. And so for those of you who already know a little bit about Gmesh, these are these geo files and so these geo files you're going to write let's say a scripted version of your geometry and as you said you're going to have have loops and uh, little functions in there and you can do something completely parametric you can have all your parameters appear in the gui so in the graphical user interface and you can modify them interactively but most of the time for researchers well they're going to use gmesh to do scripted parametric geometries and so indeed they're going to write some scripts so I would say that this is the, the the current situation, and it's the situation that exists since well the beginning actually of the project. and so we are now at stable version three point something. Um, but the next big thing in GMesh will be that you'll be able to script with whatever actually language that you want. So our main, let's say, feature for GMesh four, which hopefully will come out uh, this summer is that we have a stable API, so a stable application programming interface that is being uh, developed and tested currently where we will have uh, a stable API that uh, can be uh, used from C++, from C, from Python, from Julia, from whatever you want. And so the idea is then that it's going to be much easier for people to actually build scripted geometries and generate these meshes for very complicated cases, using the language of their choice. And it will also allow people to actually integrate Gmesh in an easier way in their own codes. So if you have a C++ code that needs, you know, adaptive geometrical modifications, then you, can, you will be able to actually directly link the Gmesh library into your code and use it, well, whether in C++ or in, C, or in P- Python or, or Julia for the moment.
2: Okay. I think a very important use case for some of our audience would be, can you load geometries from a CID software into Gmesh? For example, can I draw my geometry in CATIA or AutoCAD and export it and load it?
1: You can. So I might need to to give you a little bit of background about, let's say, the main design philosophy behind Gmesh, which is the following. Actually, all the algorithms that we implemented in Gmesh are what we call CAD agnostic. So all the algorithms are written in terms of, let's say, an abstract set of classes in C++ that do not depend on the actual CAD model that is, uh, let's say, underlying. Now, this means that, actually, in Gmesh, you can link to different CAD kernels. Now, this is about open source software. And so, Gmesh being open source, we distribute it when we link Gmesh to actually two open source CAD kernels. One is our own little toy CAD kernel that we had developed, let's say, 20 years ago. And we also link with uh, an open source CAD kernel called Open Cascade. When we mesh a geometry, or we build a geometry actually using these kernels, actually, all the code inside GMesh doesn't know actually with which CAD kernel it works, and so you can build a geometry with the same commands to target either one of these two integrated, let's say CAD kernels. Now, if you use the Open Cascade kernel, actually you can load or import a let's say standard uh, CAD description using a, an exchange format as' called step steP. And so indeed, so if you draw a geometry in CATIA or in in AutoCAD, then you could export it to STEP, and then you could load it back in Gmesh as a STEP file. But you need to understand that the way that Gmesh will process that is in an abstract way. So what we actually manipulate internally is the open cascade representation. Now, this is for the open source part. But you could link Gmesh with a commercial CAD kernel, so, for example, Parasolid. And in that case, if you were to load a step file, you would interpret the step file through the Parasolid CAD kernel. But this is a bit stupid, because usually if you want to link Gmesh with, open, with uh, Parasolid, then the idea would be that you would actually draw your geometry in SolidWorks, for example, which uses Parasolid internally, and then you would load the native description directly in Gmesh, and Gmesh never translates anything. So you're going to attack the CAD description directly using the CAD kernel in which the CAD was uh, designed. So that was a very long answer. So the short version is, yes, you can import, let's say, a CAD uh, that we drew in another package. But then it depends with which CAD kernels Gmesh has been linked to see exactly how that uh, geometry will be interpreted. Was that understandable? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is.
0: actually. It is, actually. So having a generic um, core means that you only have to write like translators for every, or linkers to uh, CAD kernels for each different yeah, so CAD kernel. So you have like... Yeah, a,
1: exactly. And, and so the, the key point is that we never translate. So the key point is that, indeed, as you say, so we write basically an interface to a CAD kernel, but we never try to have a common internal representation. So... You basically just interface with interfaces. Sorry, with the with the external CAD kernels. And so, to give you a practical example, or so, um, imagine that you need to discretize or so to build little triangles to mesh a surface. So you have a surface in 3D space or so a curved surface. In order to triangulate that surface, so to generate your triangles, you're going to need to evaluate, you know, points on that surface. And so if the surface has a parametrization, you will want to, you know, given a a pair of parameters, you want to know where in space you are for that pair of parameters. You might want to need uh, to determine the normal or the derivatives or the curvature. And so the way Gmesh works is that internally what we do is we basically query the underlying CAD package to give us that information. And all the meshing algorithms are based on the assumption that we can evaluate these things through each catch kernel.
0: Okay. Um, once in the meshing phase, uh, what kind of control do you have over the um, geometry of the mesh element? I suppose you can, it is quite common to refine locally around specific geometries. Uh, what kind of flexibility is there for users? So there's quite
1: a lot. So the, the, the basic way that Gmesh works is that you can assign, let's say, mesh constraints to uh, points in the geometry. So that's the easiest way, let's say, to do it. So imagine that you have a geometry, you have some points in there. You're going to say, well, close to that point, I'd like my little triangles or my little tetrahedra to be about, let's say, that size. That's quite crude, but it's nice to give a quick, let's say, uh, size field so that you can control crudely the size of your mesh. And then you go to, let's say, more advanced techniques. You can say, for example, well, I'd like my elements to get smaller depending on the curvature of a surface, for example. And then you provide a number of elements per, let's say, uh, radius of curvature locally on the surface. Or you can use very generic, uh, let's say, tools to specify mesh sizes. We have a bunch of what we call fields that uh, can be used to specify mesh sizes. It goes from specifying a mesh size as a mathematical function. You could say, well, I'd like my mesh to behave like one over a given power of the distance between this and that. Or you could have fields that say, well, I'd like to have a mesh of pretty much that size in that box that should decay with that, let's say, rate when you go away from the box and things like that. So there are a whole bunch of facilities to control mesh sizes. One of the most interesting ones is that you can provide another mesh with a prescription of a size uh, and use that as a specification for a mesh size. So this is usually called in the community a background mesh And so you have a first mesh, maybe a regular mesh that you generated by hand or mathematically because you have a first solution, you have estimated the error. And so given the knowledge of how, let's say, the solution of your problem behaves, you know, given that error, how fine the mesh should be. Then you provide that background mesh with the size field in order for us to generate the the, the optimal mesh that will respect that size field. So these are the main let's say ways that you could control the the coarseness or the fineness of a mesh in G mesh
0: okay uh, can you use like two um multi level meshes I mean you could you have like coarser meshes and then locally uh, in the for a second uh, like a, for multi scale um, simulations where yeah. you like yeah have a bigger yeah. scale and you have a little zoom in one little sections when you have like for another simulation and to have the vertex to correspond between each simulations or at at least the outer vertex or some main vertexes.
1: Yeah. So the thing is that, so in GMesh we generate uh, what we call conformal finite element meshes. So if you do a refinement locally, this will have an effect that is not purely local because indeed you need to connect the regions where things are refined to let's say the coarser parts. so there are some tools indeed in gmesh to do let's say refinements Uh, we do refinements when for example when you refine you make sure that the new vertices are still located exactly on the geometry Um, but we still generate meshes that are conformal so we don't generate meshes uh, with hanging nodes for example so if you want to do that then you have to do this let's say outside of gmesh
0: okay
2: okay is it possible to combine different type of mesh elements in one mesh
1: Yeah, so you cannot combine everything with everything, but there is, let's say, support. Uh, In 2D, you can definitely build hybrid, let's say, triangle plus quadrangular meshes. And in 3D, uh, depending on the kind of algorithms that you're using, you can combine some elements together, but usually using a transition layer. So if you combine, let's say, tetrahedra with hexahedra, you're going to have some pyramids in between that you might not like. Uh, and some of the methods that we're developing now for, let's say, hex or hexahedral, hexahedral dominant meshes, we actually will offer, let's say, possibilities to build non-conformal meshes in some sense, getting rid of these transition elements. But this is still at the research, let's say, stage for us.
0: Okay. What kind of output format do you get from uh, Gmesh? Like in between f- between Gmesh and your solver? or
1: Yeah. But so historically, Gmesh has used, let's say, its own uh, output format by default. So it's these MSH files. Uh, there have been several revisions of that format, and version 4 of Gmesh will introduce actually version 4 of this MSH format, which, which is, let's say, designed for, for speed and very large-scale meshes. Um, but we have a whole bunch of output formats. So from abacus to unv to mesh edit to whatever so there are probably like a 20 well, I don't know 20 or more let's say output formats that are supported
0: okay is the msh format limited to gmesh or is it a common format between different meshes
1: so this, was the, so this is actually the, the, the Gmesh native format. So what happened in the last 20 years is that quite a few codes actually have implemented readers for this MSH format, just because uh, Gmesh uh, became relatively popular in the open source, let's say, community. Um, but yeah, so it's not really a standard. It's just the format that uh, we generated historically. And so people have adapted okay. to, to use. So the current version, the current version of the format, is actually quite bad. I should not say this, but uh, there are severe limitations for scalability and efficiency. It's a very general, let's say, format, but uh, it was designed at the time when we didn't really do very large meshes, and so okay. that's reason why there's going to be revision four of the format, which in spirit is uh, similar, but uh, it's much better
0: improvements. <laughs> yeah, it's a yes, natural indeed. evolution
1: exactly a natural evolution exactly you know we went from meshes you know 20 years ago doing a mesh with a million element was a large mesh so nowadays it's a billion so <laughs> of course requirements have changed quite a bit
0: and even then billion and 10 years might be like nothing
1: <laughs> exactly piece of cake you can do that on your cell phone you know, <laughs> you
0: know.
2: okay we looked at the documentation, and we have seen that Gmesh supports additional mesh libraries like Netgen or Tetgen. Mm-hmm. Is there any reason for this?
1: Yes. So, yes. Um, well, so let me, me qualify this. Actually, version 4 will remove, let's say, integration of Tetgen because uh, we've been working with the author of Tetgen to actually integrate. It's a little piece of Tetgen that we actually use in our meshing process. So this is, going, this is going to disappear. But the integration with Netgen, for example, which is a very nice tool from Joachim Schurbel uh, from, uh, from Austria, actually, it's a different kind of 3D meshing algorithm. So it's a, a frontal-based, let's say, algorithm. And so it generates, generates meshes that, let's say, have different characteristics than the meshes that we generate. And so that's one of the beautiful things about open source software is that you can actually you know, do a tight integration of this other very nice algorithm, to have a full system where you can choose basically the algorithm depending on the requirements you have on the final mesh.
0: Okay. Besides being linked to Netgen, uh, is it possible to integrate some of Gmesh capabilities into other programs?
1: Yes. So currently, so with version three, when people do that, um, they use directly, uh, let's say, the C++ classes, which are. Undocumented, So they use our own internal, let's say, APIs to integrate Gmesh. And this is one of the main reasons why, as I alluded to before, we have been developing this stable API. So with Gmesh 4, you will be able to integrate, let's say, Gmesh directly in your code using a well-defined, fully documented set of, let's say, I don't know, well, a few dozen functions uh, that allow you to basically... Create geometries, create meshes, get the mesh data, uh, refine meshes, change things here and there. And so this is going to be the way forward for us. But indeed, it's one of the major goals we have now is to make it easier for people to integrate Gmesh in their own codes.
0: Okay. Like, if people from FreeCAD want to integrate it, they should wait for version four before uh, integrating it? Definitely.
1: Definitely. Because currently, so I know there's a FreeCAD plugin, I think, that basically goes and uh, uses the, let's say, the binary directly. So they probably, well, I don't know exactly how they do it, but I think they probably export their own OpenCascade representation. And they export it to a BREP file, probably. And then they load this into the the binary Gmesh. And then they do the meshing. And then they go back to disk for the mesh. And then they load the mesh again. And so with uh, version 4, they'll just be able to either use the C++ API or use a Python API. They'll just load the Python module. And then that's it.
0: Okay. Uh, Is there any feature of Gmesh that you would consider that sets it above its quote-unquote competition?
1: I think the reason why it became popular is probably because it it, uh, implements the whole pipeline. So I think that's the main reason. So you can go really from a blank page, you can build a geometry, mesh it, analyze the results that your solver gave you, all in one, let's say, simple, relatively simple, small and fast little package. So I think that's the main reason. There are many, many, let's say, uh, mesh algorithms out there. And we actually try to, to interface to the ones that uh, we think are, well, interesting for the, at least for our work and then uh, for the work of our students and uh, collaborators. But that's probably the main feature. And yeah, it's that GMesh implements the whole thing.
2: Okay. So what do you consider to be the strangest use case of GMesh that you have ever seen or that you have been aware of?
1: Ha, that's a good question. Uh I'm always surprised actually that uh the, the, by the things that people do with uh with with Gmesh maybe one thing that was quite unexpected uh a couple of years ago uh we we saw uh, use of Gmesh to design braiding machines so I didn't know what braiding machines were at the time so it's basically a machine that uh weaves or interlaces strands of stuff to build, you know, uh, uh, ropes or reinforce things or, you know, some kind of lace and things like that. So it was quite impressive to see. It's a mesh generator that was designed for people who would normally do, you know, finite element analysis to be used to, to design, you know, industrial machines to do weaving and braiding. So, yeah, so that's, <laughs> that was a nice, uh, unexpected application of the code.
0: Yeah, nice um we'll switch a bit about the community uh, revolving around gmesh when did the project start
1: so the project started at the uh, end of 96 be- beginning of 97 as i was uh starting my phd so it's really the you know the <laughs> the, the child of uh, of uh of of my phd and i started this with uh a colleague and close friend of mine now called Jean-François Remacle, and he was finishing his PhD in the same group. And his PhD was on uh, error estimation for finite element calculations, and he did some adaptive, let's say, methods for that. And when I started my PhD, I really wanted to do 3D calculations. And um, at the time, actually, we had a single license of a commercial tool which we'll call how was it called at the time? I think Ideas. Uh, and so we had a single seat license for that, for the whole group. And with Jean-Francois, we thought, well, you know, how hard could it be, you know, to do something ourselves, you know, to do a 3D mass generator? Uh, it shouldn't be that hard. And and then uh, while I was starting my PhD, which was on uh, solving partial differential equations for Maxwell, so with mixed final elements, I basically did that actual job, you know, financed by my scholarship uh, during the day. And then at night, uh, we started to do Gmesh. And so Jean-François soon left to to Canada, actually, to Montreal, so for a postdoc. And so with the the time difference between Canada and Belgium, uh, we continued to work a lot on uh, on Gmesh for me at night. Uh, So it was my second job during a, a few years. And uh, it started like that. So it started basically out of a need for a 3D flexible tool to do to do meshes because we didn't have, let's say, enough licenses for the commercial tools. And then we realized soon afterwards that it was not that easy, actually. The first version was not really, really great. So we had, I think, the first release. Uh, we released a binary on the the, the, you know, the nascent web in 97 or 98, I think. It was a binary-only thing because people well, saw the stuff that we used at conferences and so they wanted to have it. Uh, and then the code was not super clean. And actually, we were not doing this uh, as, part of, uh, as part of our research. So it was really like a hobby. And so it took a few years, actually, to get to a point where the code was, well, releasable as open source. And so I, I looked it up before the interview. And so I looked up at the history and just to see when we open sourced this. And so from my archives we open sourced the code in 2003 okay so only 15, 15 let's say ago. well uh, seven years or six seven years after we we started and so G- gmesh 2 was released in 2006 so it took us a while and gmesh 3 well, i don't remember but probably around 2010 or something like that
0: okay so that project really started like like this in the floss community in a way to scratch your own itch it did,
1: yeah. It's, it's fairly similar to many of these stories that you hear about, yeah, these open source projects. And I think it was made possible by, you know, the internet, basically. So we worked, you know, the two of us on this uh, long distance, and it was only made, you know, possible by by the fact that uh, communication was getting easy, and you had. Uh, you know, a network that could be used to exchange all these things, even though we were not using revision control at the time. So it's just, you know, using uh, exchanging tarballs of source code at the time and uh, revision control and all these fancy things that we use now only arrived quite a bit later.
2: Under which license is
1: GMesh published? So GMesh is published under GPL version two uh, or three, if you choose so, and there is an exception so it's GPL version 2 or later. So that's a classical uh, GPL 2 thing. Um, there is also an exception that we added in the license to make it easier for people to actually use Gmesh when combined, as we discussed before, with other libraries or tools. And so there's an exception in there to, let's say, uh, ease the use of Gmesh with uh, NetGen, with uh, TEDGAN, with uh, Open Cascade, the Kitware guys. And so... That's the so it's a classical let's say uh, GNU uh, license.
0: Okay, so it's kind of a giant GPL two plus.
1: Exactly, GPL two plus, as they would say in Debian.
0: What are the main communication channels used by GMesh users? So there's
1: a mailing list, which is well, uh, I should have a look. So there are probably like I know eight hundred, eight hundred users, I think on the on the GMesh mailing list. Um, this has been probably the most let's say active uh, channel where users uh, discuss and ask questions when they have something that doesn't work. And more recently, we switched to GitLab uh, a bit more than a year ago. And so this works really nicely. Uh, So we moved from uh, subversion to Git a little bit before that. And so now that everything is handled by our own GitLab server, it allows, let's say, people to you know, submit um, issues and to comment on, uh, on, uh, on merge requests and things like that. So GitLab is becoming more and more, let's say, the de facto way to, to communicate about the code.
0: Okay, Do you use the, a self-hosted version of GitLab or the, the, the servers are freely available on the web?
1: No, we use our own, let's say, GitLab instance, because in, in the group over here, we use it also for all our other, let's say, internal research projects and, and for other open source projects actually also. So it's become, let's say, our, well, it integrated basically in a single uh, system, many of the different tools that we used for the last 15 years. And so GitLab for us has been a very nice change in the way that uh, we, we, we do the work.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: Is there any other communication channel, especially for developers, or is it on one mailing list? Uh,
1: no, developers usually... So there are very few core developers. So I would say that 95% of the kernel of Gmesh has been written by two people, so Jean-Francois and myself. Uh, it's still the case. It has always been the case. And most of the external contributions are... Well, you can put them in two categories. Either uh, you have, let's say, contributions that fix little bugs or add little improvements, performance improvements in the kernel. But these are usually very small contributions, and these are made and discussed directly through GitLab. And then major contributions, uh, which are provided by students or collaborators or, you know, other people, well, they are getting not integrating inside the kernel they are put, let's say, in a contributed directory. And there, again, uh, it really depends on the, the way that we interact with the developers. It's usually through some research project, which is funded anyways. And so you will have, let's say, strong collaboration for two, three, four years on a given topic that will lead to a contribution in the code. So there are really a variety of ways. But for most, let's say, in-depth or very complicated contributions, it's really collaborative work. And and we will write papers about the stuff that gets integrated and things like that. So it's not something that happens over IRC IRC or something like that. It's really a close collaboration.
2: Okay. Since the open sourcing, how transparent is the development of Gmesh? What do you mean? So can people... Is it a private mailing list or is it a public mailing list? Can people look at...
1: Uh, no, no, yes. Everything is public, yeah. So the, so the whole code is uh, is public, the, the mailing list is public, and all the stuff on GitLab is public. Uh, there are some additions to Gmesh that are governed by NDAs or by, uh, let's say, that are made for private companies, and these are, let's say, private repositories, but all the development yeah for Gmesh happens publicly.
0: Okay and it, it is not it doesn't follow the Google model for Android of like a big code dump.
1: Uh no no so everybody has access to the to the master branch of Gmesh on Git. Uh, the thing is that you only have a few let's say masters let's say that are allowed to push to the master branch but everybody is very welcome to create you know its own branch or to fork and then to submit merge requests. Well that's the GitLab way of saying pull request in GitHub. Uh and so this is how yeah how things work. So it's yeah, it's completely open. And um the switch to Git and to GitLab uh a bit more than a year ago made all of this actually uh much easier to handle by us, especially since we there are basically only two of us to uh, to handle this, let's say, on a day-to-day basis. And so uh we used to use uh, subversion for this and branches and merges in subversion work. Quite of a pain. And uh, switching to Git and to GitLab allowed us to be much more efficient. And actually, the quality of the code, I think, uh, is getting better thanks to that. Thanks to the, let's say, the lower friction for potential contributors. If they want to submit a little patch that would fix a little thing, uh, before they would send us the patch by email. Uh, we receive a lot of emails, so the patch would get lost and then, when you want to apply it, it's too late because the code has evolved too much and nowadays you, you create your little branch in git in git you submit your merge request it gets analyzed and then merged and hop in 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 one day or two yeah. uh, you're done.
0: The ability to develop with local branches is really... Instead of like with SVN, you have to have branches on the server, but with Git, you can have local branches. Yeah, it probably really helps your project. Exactly. Um, Yeah, from what you see in the communications channel, uh, how many users of Gmesh do you estimate that there is?
1: That's a tough one. Um, We don't really know... Um, What we know is, let's say, the academic side of things. And so we waited quite a bit before writing the first paper, the academic paper about Gmesh. So the original Gmesh paper was published in 2009, and it is cited quite a bit. And so the last time I checked on Google Scholar, I think it's cited about 3,000 times. So it gives us, let's say, a rough estimate of people who have actually used gmesh and cited the paper in their own papers now it's fairly complicated for us to to have let's say an idea about how many people use this i have an informal data point which is when i go to let's say any conference to talk about applied math or let's say numerical schemes for electromagnetics or elastodynamics or whatever i always get questions about gmesh so my guess is that there are quite a few, at least, researchers using it and PhD students. What we have seen also in the last few years is that there is a clear uptick in, uh, let's say, industrial use. So we get quite a lot of requests from uh, uh, people in industry to use it for various mm, uh, various problems.
0: Okay, so you really see the industry being more and more open about using free and open source software in their product? Or to develop stuff? or.
1: There are both. There are both. So I I think there is, let's say, part of the use is uh, just using open source code. You know, it's there. Uh, They can test it. It works. And if it works nicely on their problem and they just need a small modification, then we can talk about it and we see how to get that done. And then there is another category, which is about people who'd like an industry to integrate that in their own In their own flow and then you have questions about okay what can i do with the new gpl Uh, are there some restrictions and then there is a lot of education still to be done about let's say the the impact or the the consequences of using let's say uh, a gpl software in an industrial setting
2: yeah are the industry partners are willing to pay for your consultant or for some new features or how does it work or they just ask and want to have it for free Everything happens. Um, if you look back at the original integration of
1: Open Cascade in Gmsh, uh, this was actually funded by Electricité de France, which is the, the, the grid operator in France, or EDF in short. And so they were interested in Gmesh because they are very open source oriented. Actually, they develop a very nice mechanical solver called Code Aster. Uh, there is also a nice fluid dynamics code called Code Saturne. And at the time, indeed, they proposed, you know, to to go for that integration, and they offered some some support for this. And so, yeah, it happens quite a bit. And of course, we have people asking for everything for free, and uh, yeah, and well, they take
0: it for granted. You
1: know. <laughs> yeah, and they want the answer from for yesterday, but yeah, that's, that's the same thing everywhere. Yeah,
0: that's, okay. Uh, um, what skills would be required require to contribute to the development of Gmesh?
1: Well, as I said, the kernel I- I- is, is quite complicated. Um, meshing algorithms are, are quite tricky. There are not that many groups around the world that develop meshing, let's say, algorithms. They are complicated because, contrary to, let's say, partial differential or integral equation solvers, there is the theory. And then you have a lot of, well, I would say black magic if you want to have something that actually works and is useful in practice. So in the kernel, the the contributions the kernel, let's say, if you are uh, a computer scientist or if you're an engineer and you are used to code, and then everybody actually, I think, would be able to do little contributions about, you know, fixing a bug here or there or, you know, introducing some performance improvement because you see that not at the conceptual algorithm, uh, rhythmic, let's say level, but at the implementation level, you see that, oh, you use that data structure and you should use something else. And I think the spectrum of potential contributor, uh, contributors is quite large. Now, what we have seen over the last 20 years, Gmesh has turned 20 last year, is that there are very few contributions really at the level of the, uh, directly of the algorithms. Um, So that's, let's say, probably one of the reasons why there are few, let's say, in-depth, let's say, contributions in in, in the kernel. Now, for all the peripherals, uh, I think, as soon as you know some C plus plus and you are interested in the in the program, you know contributing, let's say, a new input or output uh, format. This is something that is really uh, within reach of uh, of anybody who knows how to code a little bit of C plus um, plus.
0: Beside the stable API for communication with GMesh, you spoke earlier. Is there any concerted effort about the architecture of the GMesh project for version four? Like, uh, usually open source projects grow organically, like they, they have little patches, and like they grow by themselves, uh, and you talked about Gmesh 4 having a stable API, but is there any, like beside that, many mini, mini big architecture changes between uh, Gmesh 3 and 4? Um,
1: no, not really. So the main architecture of Gmesh has been pretty much stable since Gmesh 2. So Gmesh 2 was really a major rewrite, so... Pretty much everything from GMesh One disappeared, so GMesh Two was the time when we introduced this abstract, let's say, API to to CAD models, and so of course this had a deep impact about everything that was that was within GMesh. Uh, GMesh Three introduced, let's say, d- other things. Um, no, so GMesh Four really is about trying to stabilize this API and to modernize everything inside. Um, That's the main thing. What is planned for Gmesh 5, we already have quite clear ideas about that. We are in the process of externalizing most of the, let's say, complicated algorithms to actually make the code even more modular than what it is now. And so, for example, the the main 3D uh, mesh generator will probably get its own little, let's say, uh, library in such a way that we have a nice let's say, interface between Gmesh and the algorithm. And one of the main goals is that we actually push quite hard right now at uh, parallel computing. And meshing is still pretty much a sequential process. And so Gmesh 4, if you just download the version from the web, is still pretty much a sequential program. Um, Now, there are all the bits in place to actually do multi-threaded mesh generation with various levels of efficiency, of efficiency depending on uh, which algorithms you use. And so that's going to be normally the main focus of Gmesh 5. It's going to be speed, speed, speed. So Gmesh 4 is about having a nice, let's say, API that uh, everybody can use to integrate in their own code. And Gmesh 5 will be to integrate with algorithms that scale much better if you have you know, massively multi-core machines, for example.
2: Yeah. So how is the Gmesh project financed? If it even needs money at all, so from time to time, uh, when
1: there is let's say uh, work for hire, I would say like for you know open cascade integration originally, uh, there is let's say direct contributions from from industry. Then some of these contributions I talked about, well these are done by you know in the framework of research projects. So this is public money, uh, European projects or local projects from Belgium or from France or from uh, from whatever, uh, but. Otherwise, let's say the main development, if you remove all these extra bits, actually, this uh, is not, let's say, directly financed. Uh, The money that supports us is basically because both Jean-François and myself are university professors. And so we have, let's say, a fairly comfortable salary. And we have the freedom to actually continue to contribute uh, to this. And so it's a very nice thing for us to do. It's becoming, I think, a bit rare for university professors that get a bit older. So the podcast is just audio, I guess. But if you saw the picture, you will see that I have some gray hair now. So I'm getting older. But as you get older, uh, we still want with Jean-Francois to continue to to code ourselves. And so we still spend a fairly sizable chunk of time every week doing coding. And so it's basically the Basically, academia supports uh, Gmesh development indirectly.
0: Okay. Um, we'll switch more to a more philosophical side of the discussion. Uh, what is your vision about Floss?
1: For, for us, I would say that when we decided to open source the code, it was really about you have a, a scientific community, and we thought that it would be uh, an extension, a quite natural extension of, of the way we do things in the scientific community to basically publish the papers and exchange the ideas quite freely, it would be a natural extension to do this for code also. And the reason why we chose at the time the GNU GPL is because we liked the fairness of it. And so if you release something for free, as free software and open source software, we liked the idea that when people contribute or when people use it, well actually they also are encouraged to to do the same so to actually to keep it free and to make it grow as a as a free and open source project as time went by um, the, the the philosophy is still the same overall, but we saw different let's say advantages of actually going the open source world route uh, one advantage I think is that it's a very practical one. So you basically have your code in front of many eyes. And so you have actually many people who can, who can try it. And for a mesh generator, which is a very nonlinear process where, you know, you have little tweaks here and there that can make a major difference. It allowed us to have a large community of testers. And so the feedback that we get through the open source, let's say, use of Gmesh, is invaluable because it actually allows you to, to 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 produce something that is much more robust than if you were only selling it to, you know, a hundred customers. And then the other side of things is that it, it, it is then a bit more philosophical. We are, uh, as academics, financed by public money. And we think that it's one way of giving back, let's say, part of that... Uh, investment of public money to the public.
2: Do you think that funding agencies should more acknowledge if people are developing open source code out of their research projects and maybe provide some additional funding to higher students to improve the quality of the code or so on? Well, I think it would go in the right direction. Um, funding agencies in Belgium are,
1: are fairly open about uh, and very re- receptive with respect to open source software of course it varies from discipline to discipline The European Union is quite favorable to let's say to, to to open source now of course open source is not the solution to to everything and there is i think a place for for closed source also and actually even open source projects you know th- there is a place for you know sometimes closing down parts of it or relicensing in such a way that you can, let's say, integrate that stuff in uh, in, in closed source projects because it generates value on uh, on a different, let's say, level. Um, but overall, I think philosophically, keeping uh, the the code open source was the the, the 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 right choice.
0: Okay. So you think that GMesh, as a free software, has a bigger impact than it would have if it that was clo- was kept as a closed
2: uh, source software? Definitely. Okay. Do you think that using FLOSS can have negative impacts on science?
1: I don't think so. So on science, I think uh, free and open source software, as I said before, is really the extension of the way things should be ideally—a free exchange of ideas that extends to code. And so the whole open science, uh, and so this includes open data and everything. I think it's it's really part of the same. the same overarching, let's say, philosophy.
0: And now for the question that probably all of our answers are, and all of our listeners are waiting for: <laughs> uh, What is your favorite text processing tool? Oh, Emacs, of course. Okay, so
1: okay. plus later. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you, Christoph, for your time and in this interview. Uh, if any of our listeners want to reach you, uh, how would you like them to contact you?
1: Um, well, they can send an email, or again, so if it's about GMesh, they could send an email to the public mailing list or they just go to our gitlab. So one of advantage of gmesh is that the name is, is horrible. Uh gmsh is impossible. But the good news is that if you type it into google then you get directly to the right page. And so they should just google, you know, gmsh or gmesh on google, they'll get to, you know, the gmesh page or my homepage and there they'll find many different ways to to
0: connect. Yeah. I, you have a good discoverability for the project.
1: <laughs> but, it's a horrible name so it's easy to be discoverable and come on look at my last name it's even worse you know so it's g-e-u-z so nobody you know there's nothing like this
2: yeah can you tell us what gmesh stands for is it just a short form of something or is it just an acronym
1: it's a complicated history you want to get the whole history yes Yeah. (laughs) yeah we have time okay all right so it started because the, the first, let's say, we didn't have revision control at the time. And so when I started the PhD, we were working on, uh, on workstations in the lab. So DEC alphas and um, the, the directory where we did the initial development of, uh, of the code was MSH. Why MSH? Because it's mesh without an E. And so it was also the extension of the, 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 the mesh file. And then it was fairly hard uh, between Jean-François and myself to work in the same directory. And so we basically made copies. And so my copy, since my last name starts with a G, well, it was GMSH. And so my copy was usually a bit more cleaner than Jean-François' copy. <laughs> and so when we were mer- merging things around, eventually, let's say, the version with a G became the, the stable version. And this was all before we tracked, you know, commits or everything and so that's and that's reason and so the directory was just called GMSH and it, it stuck. Okay, interesting. <laughs> that's Thanks really, for sharing.
0: That's a really funny anecdote.
1: <laughs> yeah from twenty years ago, you know, 97 98 Okay. All
0: right. Okay. Have a good day. Have a good day. Bye. 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 It, was a, it was a pleasure. Bye bye.
2: This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK.
0: And you can reach me at underscore DBRAS or both of us at Floss for Science. Also, we are on iTunes and Google Play Music. You can help us by recommending the show to your friends and colleagues.
2: Our website is located at flossforscience.github.io, where you can find more of our contact information and the link of our GitHub page where you can submit subtract ideas for a future episode. Also, we have a small blog post for each episode where we provide more details about our guest and C-software and some references.
0: Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. You can get our MP3 and OGG RSS feed on our website. Also, following the new GDPR regulations, we added a new section about data privacy on our website. Our next episode will feature Sébastien L'Oriot from The Seagull Project.
2: We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in our next episode. Bye. Bye.